This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'd like to thank Dr. Jesty for inviting me to come and talk about technology, uh, really technology interventions for older people with serious mental illness. I'm going to talk about some of my own work in this area, but it's more going to be a tour of different kinds of technology approaches um, uh, to help people with serious mental illnesses. So what are serious mental illnesses? Uh, These are schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, bipolar disorder, or major depressive disorder. Um, Very often this includes psychosis, which are hallucinations or hearing voice, like hearing voices and delusions, which are firmly held beliefs that you really can't talk people out of despite conflicting evidence, uh, like being watched or followed. It's, these are very, very common illnesses. Over 13 million people in the United States have serious mental illnesses. They're actually a little more common in younger people than older people, um, possibly because there's a higher mortality in, in these illnesses with people dying from suicide and other health problems that accompany these illnesses like cardiovascular illness. The lifetime burden of these illnesses is $1.85 million per person for each of those 13 million people. So there's a huge public health burden of these illnesses. And despite all of this, only about 65% of people actually receive any treatments for these illnesses. So technologies might help us close that gap and get access to treatment for more people. What kinds of technologies? So we heard about smartphone apps uh, from Dr. Torres earlier today. I'll talk a little bit more about those um, for serious mental illness. And there's also virtual reality or what they call serious gaming, I guess, as opposed to fun gaming, but games that are meant to teach or help. I'm going to talk a little bit about neurofeedback and augmented reality and robots. There's all kinds of technology approaches uh, that might be helpful. So smartphones are probably the most common, and um, there's lots of ways smartphones might be able to help. Uh, close this gap, they can increase access to uh, treatments by having people do therapies and uh, talk to their therapists on their phone, chat, text, FaceTime, use apps to help. And so they can increase access to pe- for people in rural areas and, and move the clinic to wherever the people are, really. Um, they uh, can reduce the burden of therapist time. We have a tremendous shortage of psychiatrists, psychologists in this country, um, and uh, apps, if, if apps shorten the length of treatment, maybe by strengthening those treatments um, so that the number of sessions to be delivered could be lower, apps uh, could increase access that way. And apps help just in, help us not forget to take our medicines and do what we need to be doing to go out and exercise or whatever, but apps can prompt a lot of beneficial activities. And then there's all those sensors like Ramesh mentioned, um, you can pretty much measure a lot of things. You can do an EKG with your wrist, with your Fitbit or your Apple watch. You can measure, you can mine someone's GPS coordinates, know if people are staying home and alone all the time or leaving the house, measure heart rate, all kinds of health related things with steps and sleep. Um, And when you measure these kinds of things and have access to them on the phone, you could do what's called a just in time intervention, which is if someone's home all the time, uh, you could prompt them to leave just in time. That's what those uh, are. That's what that means. So, mobile assisted 
uh, cognitive behavioral social skills training is an intervention that we developed, as uh, Ramesh said in the introduction, I've developed this intervention with John McQuaid um, uh, here in, at UC San Diego um, called cognitive behavioral social skills training. And it, it combines cognitive behavioral theory with therapy, which is basically checking out your thoughts about things that might make you sad or not do what you need to do. And uh, role plays like communication skills training, which is social skills training. Um, and we've done a bunch of RCTs. This one I'm going to tell you here is in, in older adults where we tried to um, strengthen and shorten the intervention by using an app. So CVSST is, is a long intervention. It's 24 to 36 weeks, which is a long time to go to therapy or do these group classes for two hours a week. Um, in a clinic. And so we thought maybe if we added an app, we could cut the, the, the work of the sessions down. And the app prompted homework and skill, told people to do the skills that were trained in the group and had symptom monitoring features. And then we used as a control group another app, which is just monitoring symptoms only and not doing anything with skills and no groups to learn skills. But they stayed in their medication and other treatments. And well, what happened is uh, this blue line here is the full CVSST intervention, which improved functioning uh, well. And then this red line here is the intervention plus the app. So it's about half the therapist's time, but despite that, it still improved functioning better than just irregular treatment and just monitoring symptoms. However, not quite as good. Um, these two lines don't really differ. Um, but both of them do differ from this one down here. Um, but it worked, but not quite as good. And uh, I think apps help therapists do the therapy. I, maybe they can't work quite as well as all the therapy time, but with a lot less burden, it worked pretty well. Other people are doing these kinds of what are called blended interventions. There actually are a few with, for older people with um, serious mental illness. This is by the Steve Bartles group at Dartmouth and Fortuna is the lead author. And um, they've been piloting this interesting intervention called peer tech, which is um, peers. So other people with serious mental illness who are doing well uh, and know this intervention called illness management and recovery, which is teaching people skills in order to uh, recover uh, and uh, has a lot of the similar things in CVSST, which checking out thoughts and doing role plays with them. Um, and they added an app to that that prompted them to do the skills much like we did in our study. And it's interesting because there's no therapist. So we don't, we have a shortage of psychologists, but we don't need them to run this. These are uh, the patients themselves running the groups. And um, it, it worked pretty well in this pilot study where people engaged with the app and, and showed some improvements in their daily life um, in the intervention. So I think there's some promise for serious mental illness for these apps combined with in-person therapies. This is the, the phones can also measure all those things I mentioned. Well, one of the things we started measuring with these phones is pupillary responses. And I'll tell you why in a minute. I know that sounds strange. But you can measure someone's dilation while they sit in front of a computer and do certain tests um, using these cameras that just videotape the eye, basically, and digitize it and turn it into a diameter. And you can measure people's pupil responses. Well, phones have cameras, too, and so you can do the same thing. And Edward Wong and his graduate student, Colin Barry, here at UC San Diego, 
um, have developed an app for that. Um, and we've been testing it. Um, and so why would you measure pupillary dilation? Well, it turns out it might be a good digital biomarker that might help us uh, identify risk for dementia like Alzheimer's disease. So how could that work? Well, your pupil actually dilates more and more the harder you, you work. So if you try to remember more numbers, your pupil gets bigger each number you try to remember. So the more effortful processing or cognitive effort you put in, the bigger your pupil gets. So it's a way to measure how hard someone's trying to do a test. Now, how could that help you with Alzheimer's disease? Well, when you're trying to identify someone who might be having a memory impairment, we give them memory tests. Well, we look at their scores and see if their scores are changing or if they're different from normative samples. But sometimes people can have the same score, but work harder to get that score. And the idea is that if you had to work harder to get the same number of numbers correct, for example, then you might be closer to decline in your memory because your memory is starting to fail and you have to work harder to do the test. So we've had people remember three digits, six digits, and nine digits. Nine's like impossible, super hard. And um, uh, we found that people who have amnestic MCI, which is they're starting to have some memory problems, but they don't have Alzheimer's disease, are trying harder to get these numbers right. Now, most, you know, everyone can remember three digits, but in order to get those three digits right, the people who are at higher risk for Alzheimer's disease are having to work harder. So the pupil provides an index of how much effort you put in and might help us identify early risk for Alzheimer's disease. The earlier you can identify someone who might end up declining, the earlier you can do interventions and we might have uh, more effectiveness of those interventions the earlier we try them. So with a smartphone, we might be able to have people measure their own pupil dilation at home. And we've been doing that with people to test out this new uh, smartphone device or in your primary care doctor's clinic and, and you can have information about how much uh, effort you had to do to do a memory test. So I'm going to leave smartphones now and move on to virtual reality. Well, what's that? So usually you put on those Oculus goggles um, or you can do it like in this picture here where uh, this woman is doing um, a virtual reality training on a computer screen. So it, you're sort of embedded in the picture and you're, you play a game um, where you can move your hands around and move around in this virtual reality space. This is a study out of China with older adults. Um, there's very little work done in older people with uh, serious mental illness. Um, and um, this is another small pilot study where they've been doing cognitive training where you have to do things like point where the yellow, a yellow bird will appear and you have to remember where it was and then you point where it was, practicing memory skills like that. And they showed some improvement in memory during this virtual reality intervention. We did a virtual reality study in people with schizophrenia. Um, this was done with Sohee Park, who's at Vanderbilt University in her group. And they developed this interesting virtual reality social skills training intervention where um, people explore these environments. Uh, like in this case here, it's a cafeteria. And so, and they learn how to do communication skills and engage with people in these environments in these artificial environments. So that might make them more ready to try it in the real world. So they have to go on these quests, like find out someone's name. Um, and 
they go they go into the cafeteria or they or here's one at a bus stop where they have to choose they can choose anyone to approach and like the quest here might be to find out when the next bus is coming to introduce yourself and ask a question and start and maintain a conversation with these avatars and the the platform also measures where the person's looking using those kind of pupilometry um, devices and you could tell where someone's looking on the screen and one of the things we teach in social skills training is to make eye contact and so um, their job is to look at the green face here and make eye contact with this person and you could tell whether they're doing it or not and if they're not you could say don't forget to make eye contact so this is an example of how you teach some of these social skills using these virtual platforms and all these lines here just show that um, whether the test was easy me not so uh, easy and then difficult people make fewer errors on what they say to people and, and, and learning the specific skills and getting the quests. And this is how long it took them to fixate on the person's eyes to make good eye contact. And you can see that's going down as they practice on this virtual platform. Another totally different technology now um, that we've been using in uh, Physics Singh and Iwe Shu's lab, they are, do a lot of EEG, electroencephalogram work. Um, What's happened in the world of EEG is that you used to have to put wet electrodes on all over your head. It took a long time. It was, it's yucky. Your hair gets gooey. Now you could just put on this headband, which is dry electrode. There's no wires um, or this one, which is very popular. It's called the Muse. And it basically measures your brain waves. Your, it does an EEG and it, it Bluetooth or through a wireless connection sends the information to a computer or a tablet or a smartphone. And um, the Muse is basically done for meditation or mindfulness work where it measures whether you're doing alpha, which is a calm, when you're calm, your brain goes into this alpha brain wave. Um, and you basically can teach yourself to put yourself into alpha because you get feedback from the device about whether you're in it or not. Um, this one has more electrodes um, from a local company called Cognionics that we've been using and uh, can measure things like frontal gamma, which is a faster waveform with more electrodes. And I'll tell you what neurofeedback is now. So neurofeedback is like a kind of biofeedback. This has been around for decades. Basically, you can learn how to change your, uh, a biological signal through just practice and sort of reinforcing yourself. If you know what, whether your heart's beating faster, you can beat it faster. <laughs> if you, um, and it's the same for brain waves. So you can, you measure people's brain waves and the computer sorts out what state they're in. Is it alpha or gamma? What kind of frequency are neurons firing in your brain? And you extract that. And if you're in, if you want to train someone to increase alpha, you give them feedback when they're in alpha. If you want to train them to increase gamma, which is a faster brain wave, you could increase your gamma. Well, how do you do that? And how do you make it fun? Well, you have an application like a game. These are snowboarders racing down the hill and your snowboarder won't move unless you go into gamma. And so when you put yourself in gamma, you move, you can win the race. And so it's kind of a weird thing. If you ever sit down and do it, you're, the instruction to the participant is put yourself in gamma, you know, do, make the, make the snowboarder win the race and you don't know what you're doing, but you do learn how to do it <laughs> by just having feedback to whether you're doing it or not. 
and you can train yourself to go faster down the hill over session over we have them come in twice a week for a half hour each and do this in the lab but with the promise of these headbands we might be able to do it from home so why do we train gamma well it turns out gamma is linked these gamma oscillations which are fast 40 times a second um in the frontal lobes are linked to something called working memory which essentially is working with memory so you have to remember what's things in order to manipulate information and do things like where am I on my recipe or telephone number it's limited telephone numbers are seven plus or minus two or seven numbers for a reason because you really can't remember much more than seven things at a time about the average um, memory limits and so we thought oh well if we if gamma is linked to memory what if we teach people to increase gamma and um Maybe their working memory will improve. This was Physicist uh, Singh's idea, and it's a great one. Um, and that's exactly what happened in her project. She brought people in, and in the lab, they learned to increase their uh, gamma power um, by playing these games while hooked up to EEG machines, and um, gamma increases over the 12 sessions that they practiced. And importantly, this is busy, but there's a lot of bars here and the dark bars is before gamma training and the, the light bars after, and you see increase in a lot of cognitive domains, not just memory as people learn how to increase their gamma power. We've also tried this more recently in just a few people with um, mild cognitive impairment, which as I said, is that, that um, sort of high risk state before Alzheimer's disease where people are starting to have some memory problems. And um, we have some older adults with these problems coming in and doing um, gamma training and neurofeedback, and their memory is improving as they do the training over 12 weeks relative to what's called a sham or a mock, where they sit down and they think they're playing the game, but there's no, feed, there's no accurate feedback about whether they're in gamma or not. And um, the snowman, the sledder is just sort of randomly going down the hill at different speeds. And what's interesting is the change in gamma over the treatment is correlated with the change in, in memory. So it, it might be that the gamma training is what's the key component here. So I'm going to leave neurofeedback. I told you I was sort of taking you on a quick tour around a bunch of technologies, and there's a lot of them. So sorry to be rushing through each one, but I wanted to sort of give you a taste of each one. Um, and there's a lot of robotics. Uh, there's a lot of different kind of robots people are, are trying to use to help older adults. Not so much older adults with serious mental illness yet, but there's a lot of potential uh, with this as well. Um, there's Pearl and Hobbit and uh, um, Carabot and RoboCare. <laughs> and this one, iCat, which I think is a little creepy. Um, but this one has facial expressions to sort of have a more interpersonal uh, communication with you. Um, but they do lots of different things. Um, there's lots of support that they might offer. So just simple activities of daily living, like carrying and reaching or reaching things or carrying heavy objects, helping people get up, helping people walk around and, uh, there's some cognitive support, like arranging appointments, reminding people of appointments, reminding people to take medications. Um, there's some emergency monitoring. These, these robots can tell if someone falls and they can contact someone about it. Um, some of these 
robots are being used to improve, reduce loneliness uh, by having people interact with robots, or sometimes the robot has a screen screen that can connect with people the person uh, knows uh, who's not there. So just some quick tour of some of the robots. There's not a lot of work in it. There's actually no work in this in serious mental illness yet. And the last one I'm going to tell you about real quick as I'm just out of time is augmented reality. So um, this mixes sort of virtual worlds and real worlds together. So that's what I mean. It's reality, but it's augmented. So you might put an animated figure in a screen or you can put feedback in a, in, in, in a screen. There's some pretty fancy things. So someone might be looking at another person and maybe you, you have trouble telling whether someone's happy or sad or angry because you can't read emotions and faces very well. This has been done in autism, for example. And the, the eyeglasses in this case, like this is Google Glass here. If you've heard of Google Glass, there's a camera here that sees the face of the other person and can actually categorize facial emotions and then feeds back to the person that, what the emotion of the other person might be. So this can get pretty fancy um, and uh, do some pretty amazing things. Um, so the ways it's been used in older adults, not older adults with SMI yet, um, is um, the Google Glass, for example, can give you directions or cues when to turn, just like your GPS does on your phone. Um, but more than that, like it'll provide feedback of whether you're turning smoothly when you make, say, a left turn. Um, and then it can also make shopping suggestions. So when you're looking at the food on the shelf, it can actually categorize the food and say, don't buy that. You should buy this low sodium item. You know, it'll make suggestions while you're looking at the shelf with the glasses on. So this is the kind of things um, people are doing with augmented reality. This, this, these games to improve balance is like you'll actually walk through a room and practice walking through. Really, this is more of a virtual reality uh, game. Practice walking through a room uh, so you uh, don't fall uh, when there's stairs and practice different things like that. So that's um, give you a quick look at augmented reality. Again, nothing in uh, serious mental illness yet. Uh, that's it. I'd like to thank you for listening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.